Okay, the Spiritual Scientists podcast is joined today by Yehuda Tegar, and Yehuda is the founder of Psychophonetics. He is a coach, a counselor, a psychotherapist, and very, very experienced person in regards to where psychology meets anthroposophy, especially around, you know, Rudolf Steiner's psychosophy. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation, and we've had a bit of a chat beforehand, so we'll we'll see where we where we go. Um, and actually Yehuda had some questions that he sent me that pro- some provocative questions that, that, uh, might've been good. So actually Yehuda, maybe you can ask me the questions and then you answer them. <laughs> That'd be good I, I, I would, I would really like to start from you. I'm in your yeah. context and I want to enter your culture and thank you very much for having me. And I'm very comfortable you leading it. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. So, um, I actually have a bit of a connection with psychophonetics. Uh, I met a practitioner when I was living in Australia and had several sessions actually many years ago uh, around some anxiety I was dealing with. And I found it absolutely profound and not only profound, but cured, really cured my, what I was dealing with. So I would maybe, but, but maybe before we get into that, it would be good just to hear a little bit of background biographical background from you um maybe leading into your connection with rudolf steiner's work um but you could start wherever you like well which incarnation shall i start from (laughs) we'll go with this one for today okay okay i just have to be specific yeah well i don't know where to start really uh it's my whole biography i met uh rudolf steiner age 17 in israel by picking up the only book that existed in hebrew knowledge of the higher world, and uh, this was my 60s. Uh, he was my rebel in the 60s. So uh, we had a, a teenage anthroposophical study groups in my kibbutz, and uh, they were scared of us, so they they banned our study group of Rulushana. My teachers uh, had a meeting about it, and they thought it was a bit dangerous. So they stopped us, basically. And so we were very happy. We went underground, which is what you do in the 60s. And we kept studying Rulof Shana in the underground in my kibbutz in Israel. So my meeting with Rulof Shana is in the underground, in rebellion against the dominant materialistic culture of my community. That's where I start. The rest will have to be guided by your questions. Well, that's great. I mean, that's, yeah, that's quite an exciting uh, little story there. Introduction. You know, I also... The first book for me was also How to Know Higher Worlds or Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. Um, and to picture you in Israel, of all places, where and in, still in your teenage years with amongst young people doing it, that's quite, yeah, that's quite quite amazing to hear. Um, so what was the next step from there? So you're in a study group, subversive study group that was, uh, well, you know. From this group in Israel, in my kibbutz, the beginning of practical anthroposophy in Israel sprang out just about the first schools all the schools the first communities the first everything started by people from this study group for you have you heard about kibbutz haduf in israel no, no i haven't but kibbutz haduf is uh, the center uh, and the pioneering of practical anthroposophy in israel practical i mean more than just sitting and reading but doing something so it was created by um kibbutzniks people who left kibbutz but Quite a number of them came from my kibbutz, and also the first Waldorf school in Israel came there, it was created there, and also in Jerusalem. 
And so it was very potent time and very potent comic group of people who practically grounded practical anthroposophy in Israel at a time when there were the right conditions for it, when people were interested in the depths of the soul. While when Steiner did it in the 20s and before, it was really a bit premature and uh, he hardly had colleagues and partners with which to cultivate anthroposophical psychology. Um, he would be better be born a bit later, but that's Europe for you. And uh, we picked it up in the 60s and the 70s, and uh, it was potent. It was explosive, I would say. You asked me what happened afterward. I went to the army, like every Israeli boy does, and I kept studying it in the army, and uh, I had to hide it. So I had, you know what Samizdat means in the Eastern Bloc? Samizdat is forbidden literature. In time of communism, they had uh, always libraries under the floor to hide the books which are not allowed by the regime. I saw some of them in Moscow in the Aristotle Club. They're still there. They keep it for souvenir. So we also had to hide because uh, in my time in Israel, if you're a mystic, it's dangerous. And if you're interested in Jesus Christ, you are practically a public danger. Uh, the New Testament would not be published in Israel at all as of the law. So it was not allowed to be published in Israel. People brought books from, from Sweden and from Britain. And so I discovered two things at the same time. Rudolf Steiner and Jesus Christ, both of them against my culture, against my tradition, against my community. It was all some is that. And so I took these two books to, to the army. And I had to hide it for three and a half years while I was in the army. Because if they will discover it, I probably will be declared mad. And mad means that you get a very low health profile and you cannot get a passport and a driving license. So I had the experience of being like in the catacombs or being in the hidden chapter of early, early Christianity and uh, anthroposophy. And of course, I did not belong to any church. I still don't belong to any church or synagogue. My grandfather rebelled against the Jewish religion. I was born in completely non-religious culture. I discovered it for myself. And so I went to the army and I had to continue my development uh, esoterically, practically esoterically, I had to hide it. And, and then I was completely free. In Israel, I was completely free of anthroposophical tradition. There was nothing. There was no Waldorf school. There was some peculiar Germanic-based study groups in Jerusalem and somebody who translated knowledge of the high world to Hebrew. That was it. Later on, he translated theosophy as well. And that's all we had to go by. And at the time when people discovered, you know, uh, drug, sex, and rock and roll, I had my share of these too. But the most exciting thing for me was, was the vision of the evolution of humanity and of the individual in light of anthroposophy. And it was all completely rebellious. It was completely original. It was my discovery together with a few people. And uh, when I came to Europe years later in 1980, and I went to, because I, I went through my crisis, I lost my family in Israel and uh, I lost everything I had in Israel because I was a pioneer in Israel. I started, I started the group that became later 
Kibbutz Haduf, which is the anthroposophical community, I left them before they came to the ground and I went to Emerson College. And when I when I came to Emerson College and then to Steinhaus in London, I it was a mind-blowing. Suddenly everything was on display. Everything was everywhere. I thought they these people are changing the world because look what we have done with one book. They had hundreds of books and Steiner House and Steiner Schools and Steiner this and Steiner Society. And I, I was blown over. I thought these people are going to change Britain. Well, it took me a while to realize that they don't change Britain. And I had a meeting in Steiner House Library one day with Prokofiev. And this was 1983. This is the time of Brezhnev in Russia. And he was a dissident. He was one of those dissidents. And he got himself to England somehow. And uh, we met in Steiner's, in Steiner's shop and we shared his experience of hiding anthroposophy in Moscow and me hiding anthroposophy in Israel. And uh, it was a wonderful meeting. And and then he said to me something I will never forget. He said, you know, you and I know something that they don't know here. Look, it's all on display. They can do anthroposophy for the last hundred years. Nobody stopped them. We couldn't do it in Russia. And in the whole Eastern Bloc, you couldn't do it in Israel. And we discovered it there. And we have something that those who had it without any struggle, they don't understand what it's like to fight for it, what it's like to stand for it against danger. He said, the strength of anthroposophy in Russia is that it was hidden and we could not relax and we could not just relax into anthroposophical culture. There wasn't any. And you did the same in Israel, you and your colleagues. I said, yes, we did. And we are still a bit of samizdat there. And so that was an introduction to England. I became a manager of Steinhaus in London. I was right in the center of it. It took me a long time to realize that um, what is called anthroposophy in the world, what has become the anthroposophical movement in the world, is a far cry from Rudolf Steiner's vision of anthroposophy in the 20th century. And uh, this is the story of my life, to be on that borderline. Okay, and so um, well, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit as well, your sure. your views on anthroposophy in the world today and perhaps why it hasn't really taken taken hold as it could have or should have. Um, sure. But maybe before that, just your how you came into psychology and Steiner's psychosophy, if you like, and then, you know, you've created a whole... Um, what do we call it? Mode of a school healing. of psychological thought and practice based on Rudolf Steiner's psychosophy. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, how maybe you can lead us into how that came about, and then we can talk about what it actually is, what psychophonetics actually is, um, and then come I'm back to, some to be, bigger questions. I try to be a bit laconic, otherwise I'll be keeping you there for hours. So, where do I start? Um, my interest in the depths of the human soul goes back to the time when I discovered Steiner, but before. And I explored everything. And in the 70s in Israel, you could have explored everything. We were like a part of California in Israel. It was Israel was little California. So we were cutting edge. We were on the world clock in this island of European culture, American culture in the Middle East. So 
I felt that I've been through the 70s, the 60s and 70s in the same way that people have been through it in the West and East Coast of America and in, in London. Uh, and so I met this spirit of the 60s, 70s before I heard about anthroposophy and I was completely a part of it. Um, but I was more a part of the constructive part. I was never attracted to drugs. I wanted to be more present, not less present. My adventure with the human soul. And I was completely um, in it, exploring it in all sorts of ways, without any particular dogma or school of thoughts, all the way east and west and the Indian culture and the Chinese culture and esoterics and, and uh, whatever was available Kubla, Kubla Ross was a great teacher and and all the great prophets of the 70s. And um, for us, art, science, religion, mixed up in the spirit of youth in the 70s. So uh, then at, uh, at some point, somebody dropped this book, Knowledge of High World, and it blew my mind because the vision of what human beings can do just, just expanded my imagination enormously, and it felt very familiar. I really felt like it's not the first time I'm reading this book. It was burning in my hand. At times I had to stop and do something else to come back to it. Um, because it was like it was written for me, but not just me. My colleagues felt the same. We had a whole group of us on fire with Steiner, and we couldn't even talk about it uh, publicly, which made it made it even more intense for us. It went in. Um, and then parallel to it, and I didn't know there was any connection, I had a if you wish, a Christ discovery in the old city of Jerusalem. I, I, it took me years to realize that there's a connection between Steiner and Christianity. I had no idea. Because in the book Theosophy and in the book Knowledge of the Higher World, Steiner is very careful not to mention Christianity. It's nothing to do with it. Every Buddhist could feel at home with that. So I didn't know. I discovered Christ for myself in old city Jerusalem. And that's another story. I'm not sure we have time for that. Anyway, I'll come back to your question. I was looking for spiritual psychology. I was looking for a spirituality that affects a human soul, not a spirituality that is hovering in abstraction about it. I was there to change. I want transformation goes right down into the core of my being. And I was waiting to see, or looking to see what does it to me. And I was looking for teachers. And... That was my journey. Steiner became an early teacher, but I looked everywhere else as well. To cut a long story short, I was a part of creating the first anthroposophical community in Israel, which is still there, Kibbutz Aduv. Family crisis, and I worked in mental health at the time in Jerusalem. I didn't finish my academic education, but I studied psychology, and I studied uh, humanities and history and philosophy and um, education. And then in the middle of it, and I was also a manager of a youth department in a city, and I was busy. But then I had to go. And I picked up what I knew to be my next step, and it was to explore anthroposophy where people worked on it, because in Israel I had nobody. So everybody was same level, picking a book and making something of it. And so I went to Emerson College with someone's recommendation, and there I had a mind-blowing. I discovered anthroposophy in action. And I have to remember, this is not Emerson College of today. Emerson College of today is a is a, an empty husk of Emerson College that I met in the 80s. There's nothing left of it there, really, for me. 
And and that's why you don't hear much about it because it's just a venue. And some people took over. Emerson College of the early 80s was John Davies and Francis Edmonds Edmonds College. And and John Davy was my teacher of philosophy of freedom. And Francis Edmonds was my inspirator. So I met England anthroposophy in England in the spring time. Like it's not the spring of Prague, it's the spring of England. Not much is left of it now, but I'm so glad I've been there at the time. And I was looking for what will transform me most. I was open. I said, I need transformation. I I need to go through something that will complete my death process because I wasn't in death process and, and give me a chance to reborn. And I discovered drama. I discovered theater in that context. And my teacher of theater was Don Langman. And she came from Australia too, from Adelaide. And she was a real dramatist and she was a real actress. She discovered anthroposophy later. So she did not study drama in anthroposophical context because it was impossible. What they called drama then was something very strange. She came from uh, from uh, what became University of Adelaide, College of Advanced Education, which strange enough, I after a whole journey, I came back to I came to Australia, I moved from Sydney to Adelaide, and I completed my degree in theatre in the college where she was teaching on the same floor. <laughs> so I completed my educational qualifications where my teacher came from. She was the teacher there, and I completed it there, and I opened, I reopened the theatre in Adelaide. Anyway, in theatre, I discovered the spirit of drama. And that was a revelation for me. I discovered drama as a path of initiation. And I picked it up where the initiators left it there. I discovered what drama meant to Rudolf Steiner. And it meant a process of total transformation. And so at Emerson College at the time, it was free spirit, um, not what it is now. It was free spirit. John Davy brought the American new spirit into it. And I don't mean, I mean American in the best sense of the word. Mid America of the 60s and the 70s, it was very fresh. It was very international. People came from 30 countries and mixed up together. And there were so many possibilities. And there was incredible freedom of meeting. But there was no psychology. And that was very strange for me. How come something which touched my soul the deepest alongside the Christ temples in my youth and still does with anthroposophy, they've got nothing to say about modern psychology. It took me a while to even realize that there's a vacuum there in the heart of anthroposophy. And I, I uh, this was very strange for me. I did not accept it. And I kept looking for it for a while until I realized it's nothing. There's no teaching of psychology in the modern sense of the word out of anthroposophy. At some point uh, later on in Steinhaus in London, me and uh, two psychiatrists were so frustrated about it, we started an anthroposophical psychology research group with, with Derek Blinker and, and, uh, and Roth, uh, Simon Roth, son of the great Roth who started the computer movement. And we would meet from time to time in my room in Rudolf Steiner House because I lived in Steiner House and we were exploring anthroposophical psychotherapy because there wasn't any. There was even antipathy and hatred and fear about modern psychology. I didn't know where it came from. That was not my attitude. So um, that is the vacuum in which I entered. Great interest and already a beginning of skills in modern psychology 
and nothing on Troposophy to contribute in this direction. But I discovered drama, and in drama I discovered my psychology. I studied psychology before, but it didn't really touch me more than psychology. I had to study cognitive behaviorism, and I felt my brain get microwaved. I did not want to become a psychologist of this kind. And so, chemistry psychology, I discovered the spirit of drama, and I was free to discover it and to present it and talk about it and, and make a contribution out of it. And then I discovered the mystery of Aloysius, the mystery of theater, the mystery of initiation of Persephone. I could say I had a meeting with the mystery of Persephone at Emerson College in Sussex. I could hardly talk about it. I wrote something about it, and I don't think anybody understood where it was. And I knew that I needed to go through a journey. So I, retrospectively, I can say I realized where modern empathy was born. Modern empathy was born in theater, not in psychology. And I trace the origin of modern psychology back to the theater of Dionysus in the Acropolis in the 5th century BC by Aeschylus, who was half-graduate from the initiation of Eloises. And he did not have to keep the secrets of the initiation, so he made theater out of these mysteries. At the background of every theater in Greece ever since, there would be an altar of Dionysus, it was a form of worship. I discovered Iskalos, and I discovered this kind of theater when people would be brought to the theater on stretches as a part of the healing process. Such theater still exists in, in the Peloponnesus in the south of Greek, uh, the, the, the center of, of healing, Epidavros. And you still can see the hospital next to the temple, next to the theater. It was one healing complex, that theater. So I had, you may say, a kind of revelation of the spirit of theater. Um, years later, I realized that this is where empathy was born. And what I'm teaching in Europe, I'm teaching methodical empathy on the basis of anthroposophy. So here in Slovakia, for the last 10 years, we have a school of counseling, psychotherapy, and consultancy called Schola Empathy. This is the only school of empathy in Europe. And it is based on activating the path of initiation laid out by Rudolf Steiner, which he predicted will only be really picked up in the middle of the 20th century. Well, I was a child of the second part of the 20th century. So I went to study theatre. I went to London, to Steiner House, to the London School of Speech Formation. I thought that I will, which was the school my teacher went through, Don Langman. I thought we will move forward with the future of drama. Well, there was no drama there. There was just this kind of droning speech formation, which uh, was very strange and very frustrating. And human expression was not allowed, and human emotion was not allowed. And it had nothing to do with theatre at all. And uh, I suffered for three years. Rather, Maisie Jones suffered me for three years because I kept challenging it. And then I, they did something called speech formation. But they did not even teach theatre. 
and I still fought for the spirit of drama in connection to anthroposophy, and it just wasn't there. And then I discovered two Bibles. They became my Bibles. I discovered two books of Steiner. Both were out of print at the time. And um, those days, uh, Rubelsteiner Library was in the cellar. You know, now you can go and see a beautiful library on the second floor, but it was in the cellar because Rudolfsteiner Press took over the library and they pushed the library down in the cellar. So to find a library, you had to go underground and people walking on top of you in Park Road, you know, and uh, there, a lot, a lot of dust there. And among, <clears throat> among the, the, the dusty books, I found what I was looking for, Rudolfsteiner's Psychology called Psychosophy. And nobody even told me that it existed until that point. And there I saw he's laying the foundation for a complete school of psychology, psychotherapy, and psychosomatic healing based on anthroposophy. In 1910, in Kreuzberg, in Berlin, giving a great prediction, a great prophecy, you may say, of the future of anthroposophical psychotherapy. Four lectures in Berlin, waiting for somebody to ask him a question about it. Nobody asking a question about it. So few things Steiner gave before the time. He gave the foundation of education in 1909, education of the child in light of anthroposophy. And he was hoping somebody would ask him how to do education on that basis, and nobody asked him the question. So there was no anthroposophical education. A year later, he tried to do the same with psychology, and he gave a complete foundation of what should become anthroposophical psychology. He was waiting for questions, and nobody asked him a question. So you don't have him mentioning psychosophy after 1910 because he didn't have permission to offer something twi twice unless it's the question is asked. Ten years later, <clears throat> he was invited to start a school in Stuttgart by Malta. And he said to him, thank you. I was waiting for such invitation for 10 years. And he came to Stuttgart and he collected his best people and founded the first Walder School. He was waiting for this for 10 years, from 1909 to 1919. Nobody did it with psychosophy. After his death, Zellmann from Emichhoven mentioned it once in his book about the human soul. But there was no Steiner there. You see, Waldorf Education took Steiner. For two years, he accompanied it. He founded it. He gave the first teacher's training. He kept visiting. It was his school. Nothing like this happened with psychosophy because nobody asked the question. But he knew it. He was hoping it would be different, but he knew it. So in lecture four, the last lecture of psychosophy, he made this prediction. He gave the motto of psychosophy, which was not understood at the time because it was very existentialist. And this is before existentialism. Rudolf Steiner, the first 
in the first existentialist of the 20th century. And I can read to you the motto. And then he said at the end of it, last paragraph, on the 4th of November 2010 in Berlin, if you take it practically, this can help you now or in a future incarnation to save humanity. Do not take it as an abstract, abstract ideal, but keep returning to it in a practical way. This work must be made to bear fruit. That was the calling. And when I discovered this, a book out of print, collecting dust in the cellar of Rubenstein House in London. This was already my third year in England in anthroposophical circles. And I was sitting there in Steiner Hall. I was responsible for the fire regulations. I have to be there. Dozens of anthroposophical lectures and at Emerson College. Nobody mentions psychosophy. And I discovered that he gave a foundation for modern psychology. It was completely ignored. At that point, it, it was ignored for 60 years, for 70 years. Well, that became my Bible. It took me five years to crack the code because he gave it in code. He gave a few things in code. And at the same time, I was studying anthroposophical speech and drama. And the foundation teaching of Rudolf Steiner's speech and drama was not allowed to be available for students. Now, get the picture. We are there in Rudolf Steiner House, in the London School of Speech Formation, dedicated to Rudolf Steiner's speech and drama. His bronze bust is in the corner. This is the room now used for, for the first class. This was our school. And there's only one cycle of lectures Steiner gave about speech and drama, and we were not allowed to read it. What was the rationale for not being allowed to read it? The rationale was, well, they, they couldn't force us, but they strongly recommend us not to read it. The rationale was because you could find it secondhand, maybe, and read it, and that would be dangerous. The rationale was, if you read Steiner's teaching on speech and drama, you will become too intellectual about it. It will go into your head, and we want you to get into your body first. So we don't want this intellectual stuff to disturb you from our teaching of anthroposophical Sprachgestaltung, the way Dora Gutbert taught it after Maria Steiner died. We were not allowed to read Rudolf Steiner's teaching on speech and drama in Rudolf Steiner House in a course dedicated to Rudolf Steiner's speech and drama. But the absurd of it just, just was too much for me. You know, I was not 18 years old. I was 28. And then I was 30. And I was already formed in my rebellious Israeli nature. You know, for us, tradition is something to overcome, not to follow. I said, that's too much. This reminds me of the Middle Ages, when a Catholic priest forbid the people to read the Bible in their own language. So they started 30 years war to prevent the Bible to be translated to German. Because if the peasants would read it in their own language, 
they will not need us to control them. The whole 30 years war was fought on publishing the Bible in German. This reminded too much of religious oppression. Also, what they did with drama didn't work for me at all. I already had my experience in drama in Israel and at Emerson College, and what they were doing had no chance of being worthy of performance on the stage. At the time, maybe it improved since then. So I wrote a letter to the whole Anthroposophical Society in Britain saying, hey, I'm a student of Tristana speech and drama. I understood that he gave a course of lectures on speech and drama. Uh, does anybody have an old copy to send to me? That was the only way to get it. Because it wasn't on the internet yet, yes? And you know what? You tell Sadak Sadak when you meet him. The one course of lectures which is still not on the archive to be available online is Rudolf Steiner's Speech and Drama. And I never understood why. It's one book that you cannot find on the English website. Interesting. I've actually got a copy here in English, but I haven't read it. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, well, it was published many years later. Anyway, I somebody sent me the book. <laughs> and then for half a year, I was studying the book. 19 lectures from September 1924 and it blew my mind it was it was so fiery for me I could not talk about it for half a year and I was in the middle of a course of speech and drama and I couldn't talk about it because I it was too much and I knew it would be too challenging for my teachers so I just let it go in and digest it and digest it. And everything I intuit about drama and everything I intuited about modern psychology was there, indicated in 1924. Now, this is the last contribution that Steiner gave to the public. He was dying on the 28th of September. He stopped talking to the last address. He never appeared in public afterwards. And he died half a year later. So speech and drama, the apocalypse, and the lectures to the priests and doctors is what he did in three lectures a day in September 1924 when he was already dying. It's for the, the swan song of Rudolf Steiner. His last breath he gave to speech and drama so, this is my Bible. This is still my Bible. Here it is. It's always on my desk, bound with leather, you know, this edition, out of print, full of notes in Hebrew. English was not good enough at the time. This became my Bible. Not that I believed in it. It was just manual of experimentation. I studied uh, experimental theater. Well, years later, when I started my experimental theater in Adelaide, I came, I came to visit England again, and, and I met Adam Biddlestone in his last year of life. And he was my counselor in England, because when I came to England, to, I, I needed a counselor. And Adam Biddlestone was a true, true Christian counselor. And um, he helped me a lot, and we became kind of friends because of the first 
Israeli to be Tennyson College. When I came later to England, and some people already knew what I was doing in theater, I met Adam for the last time. And he said to me, Yuda, I read something of what you wrote about it, and I know that what you did uh, is quite controversial, but it's very different from the tradition. Um, but I want you to know something. If you met Steiner in September 1924, if you penetrated this chaotic course of lectures and made something of it, don't be cocky about it. Don't think you're so clever. Because it means that you were welcome. It means that you were given this privilege. And so be humble about it. Be careful about it. It's explosive material. That's Adam Beetlestone. And then he said to me, Ita Wegman was my personal friend. You know, Ita Wegman was in England. In Sunshine House up in the Midlands. And he said that she told him once, personally, that September 1924, Steiner was already on the way out of the body. And he kept himself together with sheer power of will because he knew that his colleagues were not ready to take it from him. And so he was already excavating because his body was giving up. And he held it with sheer power of will. Says Ita Begman, who was next to this is third hand from Ita Begman. And so what he did in 1924, in September, was already from outside the body. And it is all given in kind of code. You cannot just crack it intellectually. And he said to me, if you know something about it, if you are given the privilege of entering this mystery, we are very privileged. Make good use of it. It's not something to be proud of. It's something to serve. That's the last thing I heard from Madame Bildeston, and it became a life's work. Psychosophy that was forgotten, and Rudolf speech and drama that was ignored, became for me together one impulse. But what I did receive from Don Langman and Macy Jones and London School of Speech Formation, what I did receive from them is a holiness of human speech. Did I have to give to these people? They had an incredible devotion for the sounds of speech. And that they introduced to me. Maybe Jones for the priestess of the sounds. And so was Don Langman. I didn't like what they did in theater. It wasn't theater for me. But I loved their relationship to poetry. They helped me to penetrate poetry into the core of it. And to create an esoteric introduction to the mysteries of the sounds of human speech. To what Steiner calls the mysteries of the alphabet. So these three mysteries came together for me. And then I traced 
the background. The Mysteries of Drama. This is from the Mysteries of Persephone in Aloysius in ancient Greece. The Mysteries of Psychosophy. This is from the depths of Persephone going to the underground. The mysteries of the speech came from Ephesus. Today in Turkey, it was Western Hellas. The mystery center of Ephesus. This is the mystery of the Logos. And both Rulushana and Ita Begman were initiated there. Drama went south in Greece. It went to the Peloponnesus where they established the center of healing of the Hellenistic world in Ephidavros, which I mentioned before. And their drama became a healing impulse. And the mysteries were celebrated through the act of healing. So these three mysteries came together for me in the context of theater, because I couldn't find a space for it in modern psychology at all. And in drama, I was given the freedom to explore the mysteries. So I went to University of Adelaide and I finished my degree in education theater. And I had freedom there because it was education theater. So it was not performed, performed, performed for the entertainment industry. I did my abschluss by opening a new theater that nearly died in Adelaide, La Mama Theater. And I performed Dr. Faustus of Marlowe my version of it. And that was my initiation into theater. But I did something strange with my actors. And it became a bit known in like, in, the, in some circles in Adelaide, which was the center of the Adelaide Festival, as you know. Adelaide was in the center of the arts. Small city, but Adelaide Festival, you know. And so people heard about me. And so women started to come to me asking me to help them to recover from something which talking psychology couldn't help them. And I didn't present myself as a therapist. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a theater person. I'm, I'm researching theater. I said, yes, yes, but you do something special with the actors. Can you do it with us, please? Because talking about our stuff did not work. These were women who suffered from sexual abuse in childhood and they could not recover. It left a mark for the rest of their lives. And they said, we tried everything, we want to try you. Well, there was a whole stream of them coming to me for something I had no name for. I didn't call it anything. I said, drama for personal development. And this started to be effective. And I was much more interested in that than in the entertainment industry of modern theater. So I took some of the essential tools that I developed between these three mysteries because I was already using sounds for dramatic performance. And I started to be a popular therapist in Adelaide and I had no qualification in therapy. And then my professor from Adelaide University, Paul Rubens, not only in the spiritual world now, I hope Don is still alive, Paul Rubens came to me and said, you know, 
what you do is normally called psychotherapy. I said, come on, Paul, ridiculous. I'm just in theater. I help these people. I'm just a theater person. He said, you can call it what you like. And normally it is called psychotherapy. I said, okay. Is it legal? He said, in Australia it's legal, but it's not professional. What shall I do? He said, I recommend that you go back to university and study postgraded degree in counseling and psychotherapy. Because at least you'll have a piece of paper to give you a license to do what you do. And you will know a little bit about this field. And he did this course. So I went to University of South Australia and did a postgraduate diploma, which was like honors in England in counseling and psychotherapy. And it was mostly humanistic, existential, and transpersonal psychology. But we did the same course that the psychologists did in the fifth year. We did it in the first year of postgraduate. We had 90 people, nurses, teachers, artists, and psychologists doing the postgraduate diploma in practical psychology. Well, I'm very grateful for that. It gave me a professional identity. But I don't do what they taught me because I didn't think the way they were teaching was effective. I was interested in transformation. I have a lot of theories and very inspiring thinkers, but it was basically still sitting and talking. And I came from theater. So I combined the etiquette of conversational counseling with its rituals, with its depth, with its freedom, with the action phase of drama and the core element of the action phase was drama. Mainly sensing, gesture, visualization, and the sounds of speech. This is psychophonetics. And then people came, I took my little Toyota, I went around Australia, I gave workshops, and people came from four states and say, teach us what you do. I said, I don't know what to do, I just do it. They say, well, find what you do and teach us when you're ready. So I felt ready. I called them. I came from four states of Australia for three months. I said, that's what I know. I said, not enough. Well, that's all I know. Find more. <laughs> called them next. I had a year of training. They helped me to create it. I said, that's it. I said, not enough. We still cannot do what you do. I said, what else? I said, develop the postgraduate because we are not ready. So I developed a second year. And they started to be ready. But they said, it's not enough. Something is missing. We want to do what you do. So I developed a third year. I had to make it up completely, uh, improvising it. With my students, I created it. And by the end of the third year, some of them said to me, okay, now we can start in practice. That became the foundation of the three-year training of psychophonetics International. From there, I went to Melbourne because I received a scholarship to study art therapy in La Trobe University. And then I had two colleges. And then I went to a few other places in Australia. And a college was created of psychophonetics. We used to call it um, still counseling. We call it uh, philophonetics counseling, love of sounds. But when I came to South Africa at the invitation of the uh, South African Association of Psychotherapy, um, I realized 
I have to call it what it is. So it became psychophonetics, a form of anthroposophically based psychotherapy. And all of it is extension and cultivation of Rudolf Steiner's psychosophy. Not one book has been published about Steiner's psychosophy until today. I was hoping somebody will do it, but didn't do it. So I'm writing it now. And will this be your first book, uh, Yehuda? This book will be Psychophonetics. And it will be um, a psycho development of freedom. Because psychosophy is the missing chapter of philosophy of freedom. And it was given 15 years after the publication of Philosophy of Freedom, which Steiner realized that they don't understand how to practically apply philosophy of freedom until they can apply it to their own soul. So he gave a foundation for this, but people are not ready for it. That's why he said, see you later in next incarnation. Is it, so, <laughs> sorry, sorry, does he say that somewhere about um, about the, the lecture being like the missing part of philosophy of freedom? Or is that something you've intuited? It's, 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 I can make, put it in a very simple form. Mm-hmm. The, the, the basic architecture of the philosophy of freedom is 14 chapters, part one and part two. Part one is the act of knowledge, and part two is the act of freedom. He had to make a case that knowledge of things is possible, that human beings can actually know reality. And he was spending most of this book arguing with Kant and Schopenhauer and, and uh, Edward from Hartmann, who were idealists, but of the Kantian kind. And they said, you cannot know anything. And he said, no, no, you can know. And he represented the stream of German idealism. His PhD is dedicated to Fichte, the founder of German idealism. And uh, the act of freedom depends on the act of knowledge. Okay, what knowledge? And so what was missing in the philosophy of freedom is how to apply it to the soul itself. How to start from self-knowledge at the basis of freedom. That was not practiced. Introspection, study of the soul, personal transformation, this was not allowed in the anthroposophical movement after Steiner. And that goes back to what happened in 1917, which I can come to later. So in psychosophy, Steiner makes an attempt to complete the philosophy of freedom, to show that a path can be created for self-observation of one's own soul dynamics. And that is the knowledge that's required at the basis for freedom. Because they can know the whole world. They can know the whole botany of the world and the whole etheric world. But if you don't know yourself, you don't know what controls you. Freedom starts inside. Generation of early 20th century only started to realize. And so he hoped to develop it further. And so we take the philosophy of freedom and apply it to the inside. But the methodology of self-observation he did not have a chance to develop because nobody asked him. 
It's like he gave in 1909 foundation of Steiner education. But nobody asked him how to actually do it, so he didn't do it. Could I, just, could I just ask about that, Yehuda? So yep. this this idea that he couldn't actually sort of dive in and work on something unless he was asked. Yes. Um, I mean, there's something tragic about that, isn't there? Because if someone didn't appear who asked him, modern modern psychology or, or the whole history of psychology from the beginning has has missed out on something. And so what, what is that? I don't know if you want to talk about what that's about, this fact that he, he couldn't do something unless he was asked, and then the consequences of that up to today, really. The consequences are severe. But the consequences of breaking this rule would be even more severe. In 1909, Rudolf Steiner gave the first cycle of lectures called Anthroposophy. He never used the term before. He did not invent the word. The term anthroposophy was created by Hermann Fichte, son of Gottlieb Fichte, to whom Steiner dedicated his doctorate. Hermann Fichte coined the term anthroposophy and Steiner took it from him and gave it a foundation. He did it when he was still a secretary of the Theosophical Society. And he knew that Theosophy is not enough. Something else is needed. And then in the first lecture of the cycle of lectures called Anthroposophy, he has to introduce what is Anthroposophy. And so he does the following. He said, Anthropology is the study of the human being from the physical remains point of view. At the time, there was no social anthropology. Paleothology and social anthropology were anthropology. So he said, in anthropology, we try to study about the human being from what we left behind, from the bones, from the traces, from the physical body, basically. And later on, social anthropology developed it further, but actually still based on what already exists on the surface. Theosophy, on the other hand, is the study of the human being from the God's point of view. Theo, Sophia, the wisdom, the, the, the divine wisdom of God, the divine knowledge of Sophia. So it's based on revelation and on clairvoyance. This was still the time of Madame Blavatsky. And she established it and he was under her. And then she was replaced by Hanny Bizant and things went wrong. But he and Blavatsky had deep respect for each other. But he said this is still theosophy, the wisdom of the human being from the God's point of view. He said we need something in between. Halfway through the mountain, not looking at the human being from below, not looking at the human being from above, but looking at the human being from the human being's own point of view. And he defined anthroposophy as the wisdom of the human being from the human being's point of view. And he did not say from the initiate's point of view. He did not say from the guru point of view. It's not what he wanted to be. He said, we can wake up to our own wisdom 
with our own wisdom and encourage each other. And he never wanted his teaching to be more than encouragement. And you know knowledge of the higher world very well. Do you remember the first paragraph or the first chapter of knowledge of the higher world? Yes, I do. Yeah. No, well. Speak it to us. Speak it to us. Uh, there's slumber within the human, but I can't do it word for word, of course. Do it fine. <laughs> fine. Putting, me, putting me on the spot here. Fine. No, no, uh, no. There's slumbers slumber within the human being forces that can uh, awaken um i'm not doing a very good job here. <laughs> forces are... that can wake up for mm-hmm. direct knowledge of the spiritual world Genau, exactly yeah. you only missed one word there slumbers in the soul of every human being every every human being yep and when Steiner says every human being he means every human being. Because his father was a hunter in the forest and his mother was a servant in the house of the same baron. His parents taught themselves to read and write. <clears throat> Stane is a self-made man, born of a self-made man, free man. When he say every human being, he means everyone. The working class, the peasants, the workers of the Gautianum, everyone. Well, that's a promise. Still working on this promise, I understand you do too. And so he did not want to fall into old school of esotericism. Rudolf Steiner had an old school of esotericism. You can find remnants of it in the scripts of the first school of esoteric science. He closed it down in 1914, you know. The school of spiritual science is the second one. He had one, which was secret, and people were not allowed to talk about it. And he was the hierophant of it, old-style Steiner. He was close enough for the Freemasons for him to write a whole rituals for the Freemasons, and they accepted it. It's called the Mitzrayim ritual. It's still there. But then he realized he cannot work with them. And then came the time to change everything. And the publication of None of the Higher World went through transformation. I'm not sure if you are aware that the edition of 1914 is very different from the edition of 1904. It's like really different book. And he said in the introduction, I had to re I had to rewrite it completely because conditions changed drastically in the last 10 years. Oh yeah, I do I do remember reading that now, yeah. Mainly the relationship between the spiritual student and the spiritual teachers changed drastically. Mm. There is no need for a physical spiritual teacher anymore. And then he wrote, in everyone, there is this potential. Now back to your question about not giving what is not asked for. If he gave more than was asked for, people would believe him. He did not. Sorry, people would believe him? Yes. I see. It's the last thing that Shtane wanted for people to believe in him. 
Because if he gave something in response to a request, then he answers real human need, and it takes two. It's a dialogue. It's back to Socrates. It's dialogical. But if he gave something before people ask for it, he can at best remind them of something that they're interested in. But then he has to wait. Ten years for education. Forever with psychosophy. Because if he gives more than indication, before people really ready for it, he becomes old school Guru Steiner that tells you what you should know. <laughs> okay, so is when you just said before it's a people would believe him. Did did yes. you did you say believe in him? Yes. Believe him both, it's both. No, no. Believe him and believe in him is not the same thing. Believe him means give him a chance and checking it out. Believe in him means replacing your own higher being with somebody else. Mm, the guru thing. Become the guru, become a yeah. religion. Now, because he did that in end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, he, he did it. He had no problem. It was okay then. Then he has to close that school. Never opened it again. And what he opened again was very different. Was the spirit of teamwork. Working together. He gave the mantras. But the cultivation had to be a teamwork. So if he gave more than was asked, he wouldn't just give people answers for questions that they have. He would be telling people what they should ask about. He would be telling people what they should know. It'll be one road, old school. He needed to break from it. So we would have more information, but we would not have more freedom. And and you know, and we do have enough information. There's more than enough to work on, right? I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure about that. <clears throat> because nothing wrong with this information that he gave. But after his death, anthroposophical movement mainstream fell off the Michaelic stream. It wouldn't happen in his lifetime. <clears throat> it started when he was dying. What I mean by that, instead of continuing with the Michaelic stream spirit, they went back to the old religion. See, all the people that started Anthroposophy with Steiner, they were all theosophists. When he was kicked out of the Theosophical Society, 57 lodges of Theosophists migrated with him. And they were Theosophists. And, and he was very frustrated. All they wanted, he said, is to sit and study all day long. That's all they want to do. I want to do something. I want to change society. I want to change culture. They were shocked when he introduced a mystery place in Munich because it's not what they expected, you know? See, also, he's yes. objected to it. What yeah. is the wisdom in there? What yeah. is this Schauspielerin? What is all this playing on the stage? Where is the wisdom? <laughs> well, this was about um, 13 years before his death. Not enough to transform people from a theosophical tradition into something new. So when he died, he died prematurely. They were not ready. 
So they clamped on what they gave him and made it into some dogma. You know, he did not die naturally. That's not esoteric knowledge anymore, is it? Uh, my understanding is that he was poisoned, but, um, you know, I hear different things from different Don't places. Don't hear the different things. I, Go I, I to take... the source. Go to the source. Friedrich Grosse, was the General Secretary of Anthroposophical Society, after, what's his name? The one who replaced Steiner. And, and he, towards the end of his life, published it. He said, it's time, it's not rumor. I was there. He was assassinated. I saw it happening. He just managed to throw it up enough for the death process to take a year and a half. <clears throat> no, Steiner was assassinated. They tried three times. They got him third time. And so he died prematurely. And the people who took it over from him were not ready. And so they turned it into hierarchical lodge mentality, theosophical lodge, with central control and with no freedom of thinking. And in 1935, all the creatives in the movement were kicked out. Karl Koenig was kicked out, and the founder of Steinhaus was kicked out, and George Adams was kicked out. All of them were kicked out because they wanted something new. And Anita Wegman was kicked out, and then there was a split. And they created the Alternative Anthroposophical Society. And in London, there were two Steiner House. Is that right? Wow. One in Park Road and one in Museum Street. Mm. But years after, there's still still a bookshop in Museum Street. Um, My my book of psychosophy was given to me as a gift. It was the last in print in Museum Street bookshop. Oh, wow. Because... She told me, you helped us to survive. They wanted to close it down. And I spoke against it. There was a split. <clears throat> and also in Holland, there was a split. Well, Yehuda, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. I actually have interrupt to, me anytime. I actually have to finish the conversation there because okay. I have to go and collect my son. But could we just continue this? Because I think sure, there's so, much, there's so much more to cover and we could just have this conversation going because I think you've, I mean, you've got such a long history with anthroposophy itself. You've actually met some of the key people in in the movement throughout the years. And you have a really unique and interesting take on everything. Plus your historical knowledge of it, uh, let alone your actual therapeutic work, which we haven't really dived into yet. There's so much that I think would be really great to cover and to share with people. Um, And you did leave us with that cliffhanger about Steiner's, um assassination which is just you know yeah i mean i knew about it i'd heard about it but you just you hear different things but i really appreciate you bringing us to that point and, i'll show you the book yeah yeah well, my first eyewitness and also i met the last remaining participant in the course of speech and drama from 1924 wow. september Professor Friedrich Hebel. I met him personally, and I would like to tell you about this meeting. I'd be very happy to hear it. Now, there's a lot of other people. This is the beauty of doing this, is that there are a lot of other people who 
would be very interested to hear these things as well. So it's a real privilege actually to speak with you today, Yehuda, and uh, let's make another time as soon as we can to to continue. Anytime. Anytime. It's uh, therapeutic for me because I cannot speak like this mm-hmm. to my normal audience here. Most of them are not anthroposophists. I am not working with anthroposophists here. I'm introducing anthroposophy to people who never heard about it in Slovakia. And I'm going to do the same in China. And I am doing it. I've done it in South Africa and Australia. So there's no point talking like this to people who don't have a background in anthroposophy. Most of the time I cannot talk about it. It's just inside. So it's quite a relief for me to speak to someone like yourself who is actually interested in it and have a background, hopefully sharing it with people with similar interests. So it's a release for me. So as you can feel, I think so. Yeah, it's welcome anytime. It's good for me. I'm really happy to hear that from your side, because for me, it's also great. You know, a lot of my work is with people who are, are grieving and wanting to learn more about the the spiritual side of the grief process and the the path of the soul and the spirit after death and how healing that can be. So I'm often speaking to people who don't have a background in this as well. And uh, it's a real privilege for me to get to, to speak to someone such as yourself. So let's continue the conversation. Let's continue. And let's continue. Uh, I look forward to, to speaking to you again really soon. Thanks very much, Yehuda, for your time. Can we indicate when there's a time and we will do the same thing anytime. I'll do that. It doesn't, Thank matter, you doesn't matter where in the world I am. I'll do it with you. Perfect. Sounds great. I think we've made a good start. Good start. Pleasure to meet you. And we have so much in common. I'd like to talk to you more personally too. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Bye for now. Hey.